What's up? Welcome to Bow Down, the teaching ministry of Pastor Chris Tress. It's very interesting. I study a martial art and have for many, many years. And it's all about movement. And if you do something and you're asked, what did you just do? If you can remember it, it was inappropriate movement. So when Chris says the things he said, it's like, I look and go, when did I ever do that? But that's a good thing. Because if I did it consciously, it wouldn't have been as unto the Lord. And so check your movement to see if you're doing stuff consciously for a given result. And realize there's a better way to work. The neat thing is, God gets the glory, and people can move in freedom which they could never move in before. So my prayer this morning is our time together, is that the words that God gave me will come across the same way in a greater way than they did in the first service, and he showed up, and I'm, I'm blown away by that and thankful. But they would be first clear that it would be digestible and be transferable. So that's my prayer for you this morning. Today I'm going to speak on Galatians 1, 1 through 5. I'm going to take, and there's four phrases there that I'm going to take and I'm going to expand on that basically explains the gospel that Paul preached. And I want you to see the relevance that that gospel has for our lives today. I will then show you and suggest to you hindrances that have and will prevent that life from being exhibited in your life. I won't leave you there. I'm going to give you solutions to all those hindrances. And I leave with you a challenge at the very end. That you would move forward as you go forward with renewed vigor and purpose. So if you would, if you'll turn in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 1, we'll go 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, my apostleship doesn't derive from human sources nor did it come through a human being. It was, came through Jesus the Messiah and God the Father who raised him from the dead and the family who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Jesus the Messiah our Lord who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our Father to whom be glory to the ages to come. Now, if you're like me, and you spent time in the Bible, I read through Paul's stuff, and I always saw grace and peace. I say, well, that's a nice introduction. Let me get on with something else. Because I'd always heard grace is defined as unmerited favor. That never did anything for me. It's like unmerited favor. Okay, what's that supposed to do? How is that 
to be seen to operate in my life and how can that then help me live in a way that I bring glory to God nobody ever explained that to me so I came to a place that I said I'm going to interpret it my own way that has relevance because of how I see my life works in real time on the street and unless our lives work in real time on the street we have not lived up to the gospel of Jesus Christ it has to be applicable there it can't work here when it works there you know you got the real thing and it's all about your movement in regards to that <clears throat> so I've defined for me and hopefully you can define it the same way for you is that grace is God's empowering, rescuing, and enabling presence in my life. His empowering, rescuing, and enabling power in my life. That was funny because I was studying yesterday morning and I came across another definition that I never heard. And I went, whoa, why didn't I hear this years ago? And it basically said, that grace is God's overflowing favor demonstrated in my life. Now, hopefully you see that makes a whole lot more difference than unmerited favor. Why? It has a distinct purpose to bring about the glory of God and to enable me to be who he says I am in Christ. And to understand that it's his overflowing favor. Now, do you ever look at God that way? That he wants to pour out his favor on you? Far too often we don't. But I'll suggest to you this morning that when we start to, you will begin to see that you never can get enough of that. And you'll begin to hunger for it. And I'll suggest if you don't see it in your life, that he shows up within two or three days in some ways and speaks to you and directs you, you need to stop for two or three days and sit in his presence and find out what's going on. Because see, he's speaking to us all the time, just like the enemy is. The problem is, and I'll get to this later too, is we know how the enemy speaks, we don't have a clue how God speaks. Now there's teachings on that. But sometimes we've got to look for them. But when you learn finally, and this will be a point later, so I'll get it in the front because you can ponder on it, when you learn to hear God's voice, it will radically impact how you do life. You'll never live life the same way again, ever. And it only takes when you understand that, that can have a transformation over a weekend that will exponentially move you forward. This stuff on our relationship with God through Christ is amazing. But we've never had it explained to us in ways that can be applicable. So hopefully today you'll see some applicableness in the gospel. Now typically when you have four clouds in a row, you want to start with the first one. Well, I'm not going to do that today. Basically I don't do hardly anything in my life that's normal. You know, I always, uh, my wife had said that, uh, you know, Rick is my biggest problem. And I went, well, this is a testimony you're giving? Okay, thanks honey. He says, no, the problem is I work in a box, and maybe some of you all work in a box. 
If you work in a box, you don't want to get near the edge because you don't want to ruffle anybody's feathers. But you're missing out on so much. See, the problem with Rick is he doesn't even know a box exists. <laughs> Which means I can approach things from new directions. I can look from different angles. I was in the tile business over 40 years. Because I looked at things from different angles, I became exceptionally good. Because if I looked at a wall straight ahead, I didn't see hardly anything that was on that wall. But when I changed and looked this way or this way, changed the light, wow, amazing what showed up. If we begin to approach the Word of God and Him that way, you'll be amazed at how He shows up. So, the second phrase has a view in mind. That's the phrase that says, in order to rescue us from the present evil age. Rescue, when you see it in the Word of God, especially in the New Testament, has an echo of the Exodus. Now, they didn't need release from slavery because of their sin. Big difference. They need release from their slavery because of what had happened to them in Egypt. This event of the Exodus for the Jewish people is celebrated in the Passover. They do it every year and they have since Christ's time and they still do it because they want to recall and remember the faithfulness of their God. The purpose of the rescue then and the purpose of his rescue of us today is the same. It was so that the people of Israel could worship God. They were freed so they could worship him and so that he could experience his presence among them. That was seen in the cloud and the fire and especially in the tabernacle. So if you want to get deep, you can begin to study some temple theology. You can begin to study some covenant theology. That will keep you busy and help explain all that stuff that I'd like to explain, but there's not enough time today. And my wife said, I, you're going to gag him if you talk to him about all that stuff. <laughs> As a result of Jesus' death and resurrection, the early Christians saw these events as a new Passover. So they began to celebrate again a relief from slavery and look forward to enjoying the Messiah's presence in new ways. What it implied was that the world in general, in Israel in particular, had been and still were living under a similar kind of enslavement that took place in Egypt. In the first century, the Jews were back in the land. The temple had been rebuilt, but they still felt they were in exile. Exile is different from slavery in one regard. Exile is a result of idolatry. So they were looking for the Messiah to return because then they would be, their sins would be forgiven. 
the enemy would be destroyed and his presence would dwell among them and the temple would be rebuilt. But they were back in the land. The enemy hadn't been destroyed. It was obvious their sins hadn't been forgiven because they were certainly as bad as everybody else. And his presence probably wasn't in the temple much either. But that was their hope. That's what they were looking for. They missed it because they looked inside their little box. They missed and they couldn't see it from a new perspective. So those people in that time divided time into two periods. The one we just read, the present evil age. That was characterized by sorrow, sadness, and death. And the age to come. The age to come was a time that the Messiah would return and put everything to right. That was defined the present age. Sorrow, sadness, death would not be defined in that period. What would take place there was that justice and beauty would burst on the scene and bring about a new hope and it would fill the earth with God's glory. So, (coughs) rescue then, long and assured of it, is a call to live our lives differently. And to move to the place that we arrange our lives according to God's big picture. And to find our place in it particularly. Most of us spend all of our time reading the New Testament. And it's become my contention as a result, we have no idea what the big picture of God's all about. Unless you understand the movement from the beginning to the end... And understand the Jewish element because the gospel of Paul is Jewish. You will put pieces in a puzzle that don't fit because you'll beat them into shape. And you will miss out on the beauty of the plan of God. So it requires us to look outside the box. The Messiah people would be the people of the new age. And as a result, the blessing of Abraham would flow to the nations, and that the Spirit would be given. Probably if I ask you this morning, did you know that you were a child of Abraham? You'd go, what does that mean? Well, it has big significance. But yet, we never speak of that, because we don't see the relevance. Because really, in the second, third century, a guy named Marconian got rid of all the Jewish elements... And from then through the Reformation, they've done a good job of doing the same thing. At the expense of understanding the big picture of God and where he wants us to fit into it. And it's time we return to the gospel that Paul preached. Not to the gospel that we find in our day to day. These people were confined the new people of God. So with the resurrection, everything changed. All the definitions changed. All the promises were fulfilled. No longer in Israel, but in the person of Christ, the Messiah. Because as Messiah was a representative of Israel, he was their king, and he was a sovereign lord. So when you wrap all that together, it defines things in a whole new way. 
If you want to look a little further, you can look in Revelations 5, 9 through 10. And this sees the redeeming action was resulting in God's people becoming a kingdom. That will be a family or a people and priest. As you know, priests are supposed to represent God to the people. So we're going to be a family. Now I find today I see a few familiar faces. The sad part is with two services, I don't know any of you all. A lot of you don't even know me. And so it's difficult to be family if we can't ever spend any time together. So it means we've got to move to the place that we begin to work a little harder. So I'd like to see your faces. So <clears throat> and so as family, we will reign on the earth. And in the, end, in the meantime, we'll be the advance guard to set things in motion for the Messiah's return to earth. As a result of this, our lives, because of our faith and trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, are now to be characterized by our obedience, our steadfastness, our endurance, and our confidence. Do those four words resonate with you as to how you're moving in your daily life in relationship to your God? Hopefully some. But this is where we need to be moving. It changes how you do life. So then the question becomes, how does the first clause explain the second? The first clause is the amazing act of God's self-giving love through the faithfulness of Jesus. He gave himself for our sins. Now the thing is, sin's a big deal. And sometimes we spend too much time on sin because we look at behavior. Behavior is a symptom. Just like sin is a symptom. We have to learn to go deeper. We read all, in fact, if you're good at reading all the, the parables, there's always something surface. Let me tell you this. There's an amazing amount of stuff below the surface that if you miss it, you have no clue what that parable just got through saying. And so unless we look below the surface, we don't see that what stands behind our sins is idolatry. And idolatry is a result of what it talks in Romans 1 because we have chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. Another way to serve would be that we have been content to build our own kingdom at the expense of not building God's kingdom. What stands behind the idols are the dark powers. And they enslave us as a result of our idolatry. We are designed as image bearers to exhibit God's authority and power and self-giving love to the world. When we cease to do that, we give our power to the dark powers and they gladly accept it. 
Because what they've done is they profiled us. I go on Amazon, I buy another book. Ah, oh, Rick. Other guys that have bought this book, they bought these books. And I'm going, well, how do they know all that? Well, it's amazing. They profiled me. Just like if you're on the internet. All right, first I'd say, get off of it. Because everything you find on there for the uh, algorithms is designed to be what? Adversarial. If you read in Galatians, what's adversarial? The works of the flesh. Because they're self-interested. Where the fruit of the Spirit produces unity. And so they gladly take it because as a result, it causes us to do life this way. One or both of you are going to get hurt. But we're called to live life this way. And so as a result, we're still enslaved. Now the idols that we worship are not made of wood and stone as they were in Christ's day. And the temples back then were on every corner. God was big in his day. And everybody in the Greek and Roman era believed in God and the gods. But they spent all their time trying to appease the gods. And it's really amazing. We've got a God that doesn't look to do that. He moves towards us. But yet, on every corner of our streets, we have all the gods of the culture. And we're susceptible to them. If you want to see what those gods look like, in Revelation to the churches, all the things that are talked about in the church are a result of cultural assimilation into that particular church. And when you see that, it's an eye-opener. And yet, all of that is coming into churches today. That makes sense? Because we haven't paid attention. And so it sounds good, it looks good, uh, let's go ahead, don't worry about it. Be tolerant. So we're tolerant of sin too. Well, I don't think so. The problem is that as we go forward, the result is that who we look like, who we worship. It takes about that long. Why do I say that? If you look at Adam in the garden, once he sinned, God confronted him, what did he do? Instantly he took on the character of the enemy. Blamed, excuses, accused. That quick, it's like, well, how could it be? It can be that way because worship has a yeast, a yeast component. A yeast component, a little bit, is put there for what reason? To permeate the whole. So when idolatry has a yeast component, it contaminates my entire being. But it doesn't bring glory to God. If I am full of the presence of God and worship Him, not just here, all day long, every day, uh, I represent him well.
So as an image bearer of God, we are designed to use our authority and power to move in self-giving love in our families and our church community and express this love and unity to the world. As I said, idol worship gives the authority to the dark powers. The good news is that now the pagans, that used to be us, are freed from the present evil age, and as a result, for the first time, have the availability and freedom to believe in God and become members of his family. That's because the grip of the old slave master, the dark powers, has been broken. We are no longer under the grip of that slave master. And that good news is for everybody. And we should be able to share that with anybody about the hope that we have, that we've experienced. So I've said before that if you take Jesus' response to the disciples of John the Baptist, he said, John was in prison saying, go find out if this Jesus guy is the real deal. Why? Because he wasn't acting consistent to the pattern I told you they were looking for. So he talks about the lame, the deaf, the blind. If we would begin to define our movement in God as a released, and we find in each one of those people, me. I was what? How were you blind? How were you deaf? How were you lame? How were you dead? Now share that with people. Let me tell you about this God. So it's like, like well, how much time you got? <laughs> it should be that long. <laughs> because he's done so much. And he's just beginning. So now they're freed. It doesn't mean that it won't reoccur. But a better way to find it is that through baptism and faith in the Messiah, our status as a sinner or idolater is no longer applicable. Okay, make sure you understand that. Our status as a sinner or an idolater is no longer applicable in my life. You do not have the luxury to go around saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Absolutely inappropriate in relationship to who God is and what he's done. Because I found over the years that when we say that, we make allowances for sin. It's no big deal. Everybody did it. Oh, if you got a problem, you quote Romans 7. Well, you quote Romans 7 incorrectly. Because that's not what Paul is talking about. But we find it's convenient because it says the words we want to hear. And we apply it to our question when that wasn't a question that Paul was dealing with. And so we need to say better, no, I'm set free and I'm defined as an adopted son and daughter of the Most High. And if you really want to get real technical and get down further, say, no, I am now a slave of Christ. Now, we don't like to use that word. But if we use it in that way, it has really some good stuff. Because that means that, hey, 
It's not about me getting what I want. It's about Dad getting what he wants. Life looks different when we look that way. So does that mean that we're no longer susceptible? No. We only become susceptible to the attacks of the enemy when we are not in God's presence. Okay, when we're not in his presence. So the question would be, do you know when you're in the presence of God? What does that look like? How does that resonate in your body? What does it do with your thinking? And do you know when you're not? And how long does it take you to know when you're not? It should be about that long. But sometimes it takes longer. But we need to know that. Because as a result, we're not moving as image bearers and therefore not functioning in the authority he has given us. And we are not above all revering his word. If you go to London and you get in their subway system, every stop before it stops, it says, mind the gap. That's the space between the car and the platform. Well, if you step in that gap, what's going to happen? You got trouble. When we're out of God's presence, we're asking for trouble. And the enemy will not take very long. He's like a cockroach. You give him a gap, sucker's going to get through it. (laughs) And so keep it narrow, okay? Now when he shows up, there's a way you can fight him. I would thank you for coming. Thank you very much for showing up. It reminds me I'm not in my dad's presence, and that's where I'm going. Now, I want you to go to the foot of the cross and be reminded that you're a defeated foe, and you go wherever my dad tells you to go, okay? But as I do that, I'm smacking him upside the head. It's like, why do I want to go? Get reminded I'm defeated. So we need to find ways that we can effectively fight the enemy. So... The really question is, then, how do I know if I'm in the gap? John 14, 31, my paraphrase. Jesus was with the boys before he's getting ready to go to the cross. And he's sharing with them. They didn't understand it. The enemy is going to pull out all the stops. Pour everything he can on me and at me trying to dissuade me from doing what I'm called to do as my vocation. But I want you to realize one thing. There's nothing on the inside of me that can stick. So you know, uh, we got some older people. Everybody know what flypaper is? Yeah, some of us do. Yeah, we used to have it. I, growing up down here in Florida, you had screen doors, no air conditioning, and plenty of flies. So you got this little thing, you unroll it, hanging down, and boy, those flies loved it. Boom, they stick on you and go, gotcha. And so the enemy does the same way. So what sticks on the inside of me tells me that I am in the gap. It's the buttons that people can easily push, correct? It's driving down the road when you get cut off. 
Do you say, go this way? Do you wave with the hand? Maybe all fingers or just one of them? <laughs> Often, that's we don't use all those fingers. Why? That's a conditioned response that creates a gap. Because they interrupted what I wanted to do. The same thing happens when I have to have my own way. When I manipulate, try to control, determine outcomes. For you guys present, which there are a lot of you, that is one of your biggest problems, because that's always been my problem. I'm going to determine the outcomes. And we get very good at it. At the expense of not allowing God to move on our behalf. So when you see those things start to come in your life, and they're instant, you realize you're in the gap. You better close that gap. The third clause, which is the ultimate reason why all this is being done, why the whole gospel was created, is according to the will of God. Many have come to the place and said, well, this is God's plan B. Adam couldn't do what he's supposed to do. In fact, he was designed that he could have done everything that Christ did. But he failed. Israel, obvious because they went into exile, they were no better. So God's up in heaven going, oh, what am I going to do? i got to come with something. Ah, maybe I'll send my son. Maybe he can figure it out. No. This was God's plan from the beginning. Because they looked in the box, they couldn't figure out what was outside the box. And it was firmly rooted in the long-standing promises of God, of the Creator God, known as Father. Father. He's the head of the family. I don't call him father often. Basically, I know him more as dad. And that's how I'll speak to him. We've had a relationship for a long, long time. And I have that comfortableness that I can just say, Dad, thank you. What do I do about this, Dad? I've over the years asked him a lot of dumb questions. The answers I don't normally like because the problem is not somebody else, it's me. But yet I'm free to ask him those questions because I know he's going to reveal to me exactly what I need to represent him well. So the fourth clause is the ultimate goal took place for God's eternal glory. The gospel of grace and peace is a display of God's power and love and it comes full circle as a result of our individual and corporate worship and praise. So that makes this time together more significant than most times we take it to be. So maybe sometimes we can get some little more music to have a little bit of pep to it to get a little dancing. Okay? A little hallelujah once in a while. I mean, so we can get excited, you know. In fact, my uh, youngest daughter and her family showed up, and that was a blessing this morning, and they have a foster child, and she was standing in the aisle back, my wife, and she's dancing, and my, uh, one of the granddaughters was dancing. I'm going, they just showed up. They got it right. We're sitting here like a knot on a log. Thank you, Jesus. Okay. Okay. So if you want to see 
this thing on glory a little bit further. Make a note. Look at Romans 15, 7 through 13. But today we're given an opportunity to become a people who are excited about our new vocation and eagerly look to enjoy all the ramifications and possibilities that are being asked of us as people of the age to come now until it is finally consummated when he returns. So the question is really what's holding you back? What are you worshiping that's more important than that? I want to share with you some hindrances that impede that flow. The first one is the gospel we have today, I don't think it's anything like the gospel of Paul or the gospel of the New Testament. We have watered down so far that we say, okay, all you got to do is say a prayer. We'll pat you on the back. You're going to heaven when you die. You're good to go. You can't find that anywhere in the Bible. I'm sorry. You can look. You're not going to find it. As a result of that, in my lifetime, I have seen that now we become individualistic, we become private, and we become secretive. We're not concerned about a vocation, and we care very little, if at all, about unity. And the sad part is, God is offering us, in the gospel, a job. Everybody's looking for a good job, right? And we change jobs all the time because we can't seem to find a good one. And whether you're at home with children, you're an executive, you're just a laborer out in the field, you've got a vocation. And that's your job. But he's offering us a job that is, we are perfectly suited for. That he's enabling us and empowering us to do. And because of our relationship with him, we know that he believes in us, wants the best for us, and is going to assist us throughout the whole thing. And yet we're looking more like people today that want to sit home and collect welfare. Because they don't want to go back to work. They're making more money at home. I don't think that pleases God. The second thing is we're too busy. Dallas Willard would say you need to ruthlessly remove hurry out of your life. Why ruthless? Because it's stuck there real well. And most times that hurry is a result of me building my kingdom, not God's kingdom. Everybody sitting here, by and large, is a whole lot more tense than we think we are. I would do an exercise and put your arms out and rotate when you stop when you feel tension. They get all the way over here. Oh, I feel some tension. No, if I move here, I feel tension. So you got more tension than you know you have. And as a result, it impedes your movement, not only physically, but spiritually. If you have less tension, you're going to have more power to follow him and obey him and represent him. So an exercise you can do when you get done today, okay? You're going to talk to somebody. So I want you close enough that if you had to, when you're looking down, you see their feet, you can touch them with your feet. But I want you talking to them as I'm talking to this gentleman here when I'm that close, and I'm looking in his eyes. I should be able to see those feet 
and touch them. If you can't, which basically by and large, very few, if anybody's going to be able to do that. Why? Because you're so stinking tense and you don't know it. And God wants us to become acutely aware of our tension. Because it is improper thinking. I'm trying to do something at the expense of not letting him do it. Also, the third one is, we're not plugged into the source. Often enough or long enough. If we came in today and there was a barcode, and you got scanned with the barcode on the outside of you, on your shoulder, wherever they're going to have it, it would come out that, oh, man, everybody sitting in here is good to go. They're a child of God, and they're enjoying His presence. The problem is, more than likely, there are at least a few here today that what's on the inside of that can doesn't represent a life of being intimate, interactive, or progression. It doesn't represent a life that is flexible, fluid, or free. It's more defined with anxiety, tension, fear, having to get my own way. And so... We have to get to the place that we become honest and begin to realize that our vertical vitality is what's going to impact our horizontal harmony. The next one is we have to thoroughly understand the voice of God. Maybe some of you don't think he speaks because he hasn't spoken so long. Maybe some of you think, I don't know how to understand his voice. It's imperative that you do. There's teaching available. I've got teaching on this, so at some point maybe uh, I can share some stuff on that, or Chris can. But once you understand God and understand his voice, he says what? My sheep what? Hear my voice and do what I say. Well, why are we not doing what he says? We don't hear his voice. Or we choose not to listen. It has drastic implications physically and spiritually. It can produce death in both realms. Last Sunday was Father's Day. I never look at Father's Day the same as I used to. In 1989, I was on a bicycle trip from L.A. to Savannah, the long ways. And we were moving towards the end of it. We are headed towards Alabama. And it was Father's Day, it was in the afternoon. There's no traffic on the road. I'm with my best friend, still my best friend. And I said, okay, Jack, I'm going to be on the inside. We're not looking back unless a car is coming because the guy behind us go around us. So I'm riding and we're talking and having a great time just fellowshipping and things of the Lord. And all of a sudden there was a voice, move over. I looked back and I saw a red car coming. I waited a second, about that long, said, move over. I moved over. I no sooner got in front of his tire, that car missed me by this much. Went off the road, spun backwards, went down to a ditch, flipped over two or three times, landed on its wheels in the field. I rode over, jumped on, I said, Jack, wave down anybody, call for help. I get to the car, there's nobody in the car. It had a sunroof. There was a card stuck in the side window. 
a happy Father's Day card from his daughter. More than likely, he had been there. I suppose he'd been drinking. He was laying on the ground. He had a compound fracture in one leg. Never got a heartbeat or a pulse, and he died in the field. I've come to see that as he was on a mission. He had a job to do, and his job was to take me out. He failed his job, and this is how ruthless the enemy is. He took him out and killed him, and he lay dead in the field. He didn't do what he was assigned to do. So the enemy plays for keeps. Mind the gap. Okay, the last thing which I think is, is, is important is in the Lord's Prayer says, give me there our daily bread. I've never really gotten much of a good, maybe it's just I wasn't listening over the years, I don't know, a good example or definition of what that's supposed to look like. Now, does that mean I just, I get something for lunch? Or is it good? Oh, I got a little snack at my devotions for a few minutes. No. Daily bread. So now they're saying we need to eat small meals multiple times a day. What does that look like? The biggest factor until everybody is employed, whether you're employed at home with kids or employed on a job, unless you move to the place that you're able to engage God in every aspect of your job, your work, you are wasting eight to ten hours minimum of a day and not being able to grow in grace and peace and reflect Him. I was in the tile business for over 40 years. There are many, many times I'm on my knees eight or ten hours a day Non-stop, never get up, never eat. But because Dad and I are talking about the job and we were dialoguing, I got very good. Why? I was his apprentice. I went home. I had tons of energy. On my knees all day long and tire work is no fun. I'd go for a 25-mile bike ride. I know too many people don't look forward to going to work and feel like crap when they get home from work. Bad day, exhausted. If you will change the scenario and engage him, you will never do life the same way again. Solutions. Sad part is it takes time. It's not instant. You got to take baby steps. You can't take big steps. You got to become a salsa dancer, you know. Okay. I got carried, I started dancing, and I lost the speaker, right? And it takes tons of effort. It's going to require you to have VIM, V I M. I need a clear vision of what my life is supposed to look like if there's appreciable Christ likeness in it. That means I need to know in the all the six elements of my being, my thoughts, my feelings, my heart, my social context, what I do and don't do with my body and my soul, what each one of those realms look like so that I can compare as I'm moving forward in God how close I am to that reality.
And then you have to have intention more than your New Year's Eve resolutions that only last a week or two. But intestinal fortitude, no, I'm going to stick with this. And then you have to have means. The means are that which fortifies the intention, which fortifies the vision. And so it will require that you also get involved in spiritual disciplines. Dallas Willard and Richard Foster both have books on that that are excellent. But you'll need to spend time, especially in the area of solitude and silence. Most of us can't sit still for five minutes and do nothing. How would you do if you had to sit there for 15 or 20 minutes and never have a thought come in your mind? You could be that still and relaxed. Well, at that point, the waters in your life are clear and still. You'd be surprised how God can speak. So there's nothing magical about a spiritual discipline. They just help you do what you couldn't do unless you did them. And that's position yourself before God often enough and long enough so that He can change you. So the challenge. If you're sitting here, it's obvious to me that you've started well. And I applaud you for that. Keep pressing on. Go deeper in your relationship. Make sure it's defined by being intimate, interactive, and progressive. You can also define it as being flexible, fluid, and free. It will require you to look outside the box a whole lot. So God really today is saying, stick with me. Learn increasingly how to listen to me. Figure it out and come back for more. In order to do that, we have to learn how to live in risk and uncertainty. And basically, that's something we all run from. But in the midst of risk and uncertainty is a place that I am no longer in control and it's exactly the place God wants us to get to so that He can be in control and direct our lives. So I understand that it's scary. But I also understand that it's a fun ride and you'd like to take it over and over again. Because he wants us to be a people that is in control in uncontrollable situations because I trust in him and know that he's going to show up. The last one is expect God to speak and show up. Chris mentioned his rock collection. My wife and I do a lot of premarital counseling, and we, we, we've called it a bucket list. It's not where you want to go. A list of times when God showed up beyond a shadow of a doubt. Because in your life, some of you are young. You may not have had any trouble in your life yet. Trust me, it's coming. You cannot escape it because it's God's plan. And He wants to meet us in those places. And you're going to need what's in that bucket list. Because when the lights go out, when your confidence is gone, and life sucks, and you want to give up, you need to know what's in that bucket. Because it reminds you how faithful your God has been in your life, and now He'll give you hope to say, I can trust you with this one. Then it will move deeper in some places when you get older, maybe it this way when you get young, some too, that you can be able to say to Him, you're enough. That means nothing's going to change. 
It will not get better, but you're enough. I can still praise you, follow you, and worship you. I'm going to share with you one story in closing. So the music team, you can come up if you like. My youngest daughter, as I told you before, blessed me by showing up with her and her family. She and I, for over 15 years, fed the homeless at City Place, before City Place was City Place. The only thing down there, everything was vacant for at least a quarter of a mile anywhere you look, except for the church. And where the church was, before they changed it down there, there was a fountain. Where that fountain was, was a wall, because that's where the street was. And so I really thought over time, I saw where God, as a result of my faithfulness, blessed those people on the street. Because back then, every Tuesday at 5 o'clock, it would rain. Sometimes it rained all day. There were times we were getting the food ready. I couldn't see out of the house. I loaded the truck. All of a sudden, I get there, it ain't raining. Now, this happened so often, I finally told the people, I said, whoa, you believe how much God loves you guys? They got excited. I also found out as we fed, there were multiple times when the food that we had prepared couldn't supply the need of all the people that were showed up. Can I remind you of any story in the Bible? There was more than enough to eat, and there was leftovers, and they could take them with them. But that's peanuts compared to the big one. There was one day my middle daughter went with us also. She didn't because normally because she did synchronized swimming. And so my pickup truck, the keys always were in it. The windows were always down. The doors were never locked. She came. We got ready to go. Lo and behold, the windows are rolled up. What do you think else happened? Doors were locked. Keys were inside. Okay, what do we do now, Dad? I said, okay, guys. I know in that lot out there, there's got to be a coat hanger someplace. Can you go find one to get me in? Woo! They found a coat hanger. Could they get me in? No. The ladies on the wall said, Mr. Rick, we're going to start praying. I said, that's the best idea yet. Well, there was nothing down there. And so you would see a car if it was coming. I was standing there by the truck, and I sensed there was a vehicle behind me. Never heard it, never saw it. I turned around, the window rolls down, and a very attractive young lady puts her hand out and says, I think you need this. It was a Slim Jim. That nice tool that if you're a thief, you wanted to have because you could get in that vehicle quick. So I took it, turned and looked at my truck, and I looked back east about that long. There was no car. Now, she couldn't have gone 500 feet in that period of time. So when you're in the middle of doing what God wants you to do because you're in love with Him and your relationship is defined as the ways I've said, He will show up on your behalf. He sent an angel to get me in a truck. Tell me how that makes sense. It makes big sense because He does big stuff and He does little teeny stuff. But you need to expect him to show up. And you expect to hear his voice. So I trust that you can ponder this. That you will find application to your life.
as a result, that you begin to increasingly have a bucket list and use it as a reminder of His faithfulness, but more than that, as a reminder to share with somebody else so they too can get excited about your God. Thank you. Thanks for visiting us today. Make sure to check us out online at www.bowdownchurch.com.